Hello, right, Peter. How you doing? I'm doing good. Yes. Welcome it's to Sound Engagement. <laughs> been a busy uh, holiday season. Yeah. We're ready to get back at this. Yeah. Yeah. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy birthday, Jesus. Yeah. So I say to all my <laughs> secular clients. <laughs> nice. Who are yeah. super politically correct. I'm like, <laughs> that's their, they always ask me. Happy like, holidays. You yeah, say, say Merry, Merry holidays. holidays. Yeah. They're like, happy holidays. Is it okay if I say Merry Christmas? So it, my, my joke is just, I just say, oh yeah, happy birthday to the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, don't <laughs> I want to moving forward. <laughs> the older I get, Brad, the grumpier I become. I, I'm starting to understand curmudgeons. I, I do. I, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling that as well. It makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I, one of my favorite cartoons is Up. Um, I always. Cry oh, I love first, it. I always cry like when she dies. Minutes. Oh man, yeah. yeah. But I get. Sorry to, to spoil it for anyone who hasn't yeah, right. seen that. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Spoiler alert! Well, Spoiler that's put alert. that in the notes. We just spoiled oh that gosh. for you. Yeah. No, I feel like I, I I get the older guy more and more. The older I oh, get. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's just, um, <laughs> I do. And on a more serious note, I I reread uh, Death of a Salesman. Oh. Almost every year, because I I really really understand Willie Loman and his whole psychology and just like you know being the. I'm, do you are you aware of that play? Uh, I am aware of it, but I haven't read it. Is it? Oh, does gosh. was that would that connect to this whole concept of oh. you know working ourselves to death? Is it related? Or, yeah, totally I wasn't even thinking that. Yeah, well, 100%. we'll bring it back 100%. into yeah. this discussion then. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Anyway, so, all right. Well, hey, yeah. So we are looking at part three. This is part two of our book review of the Boy Crisis, um, and I'm a pastor. My name is Brad Mills. This is Peter Anderson. I'm a therapist, marriage, marriage, family therapist. <laughs> I don't know if you go by the whole title or if your therapy is not just with marriage, married couples. I would prefer so. if you just refer to me as Peter Anderson, <laughs> LMFT. Um, MD, okay. THM, moving forward, yeah, doctor, <laughs> doctor. <laughs> Were you there so, during that conference where Al Mueller was kind of picking on? No, it was who's the guy? What was his name? Mark Mark Dever. Oh, and he was no, like, I, I don't call, I don't call uh, your pastor Jay Lincoln Duncan the third. I call him Leg. <laughs> yeah, I just call him Leg. That's all. And I looked over at Lincoln Duncan, and I don't know, he wasn't really smiling when he told me something. I was like. I was like, come on, Dr. Duncan, let's just call you leg. <laughs> so, call not Jay leg. Anyway, I'm interrupting. I'm doing small talk. You no, go ahead. All right, we're talking it's about fun. Purpose. Yeah, hey, I mean, yeah. Right. you know, if, if someone really just gets tired of the banter, they they always end up putting the little um, minutes in the, like in the notes that skip ahead, you know, to, to minute oh, three, right. where they actually start talking. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. Where they get serious about this video. <laughs> Anyways, so that's always an option if, if, if. But our true fans will hear us. Yeah, Jump ahead. All right. So, Peter, we are looking at the purpose void. Mm-hmm. The purpose void in a in a boy's life. Um, and he really, this is all the way into chapter eight already. Some of the, the first few parts were pretty short. But um, part three, I think we're going to do this in two parts and just try to cover a couple chapters right now and cover the rest of it next time. But in this first Chapter chapter eight, I think it's one of the more lengthy uh, chapters in this section, and mm-hmm. he really begins by defining what is a what is the purpose void, and just the two primary uh, determinants of purpose in the past, like tr- traditional um, men and boys 
the purpose was work and warrior, right? So we're, mm -hmm. uh, your career determined who you were, what you did. And then the other was like, a, you needed to be willing to go and fight, uh, mm -hmm. join the war. So those two areas have now, are those primary purposes have been not threatened necessarily, but they're, you know, they've, they've become less, uh, the options have to broaden at this point because more and more women are working, families are too income, you know, the, there's not a sole breadwinner anymore and men are not needed in war as, as much as they, they were. So that's the, the idea here is that we have a purpose void because the options for what a man can do to find that purpose are generally still related to work um, and yet their options are becoming more and more limited by both outsourcing, right? So if you're in like a blue collar work, a lot of those jobs are going out, uh, mm -hmm. out of the country or even being outsourced to technology, right? So um, you're just losing opportunities to do that kind of work. And if, and if your white collar job, you know, you, you're, the field is more competitive, because yeah. you have both genders in the workforce. So any other thing to add to the purpose like, or just understanding what is the purpose for mm. you? Yeah. I mean, I like how we said, you know, when you were talking about the dad and the granddad, um, the, the disconnect, I would say, between our own fathers and our grandfathers. I mean, you know, we, let's not forget. I mean, we're going on. I'm actually reading, finishing up the book um, uh, Hitler by Ian Crenshaw. And it was like literally 1923, mm. which is hundred years from now, like Hitler started rising in power and then brought us to world war two. And those are our granddads. Like they were fighting against this regime. And then my own father and then my uncle, they fought in Vietnam. I mean, I think people in our generation, we're in our forties. So I think we know people that fought after nine 11. And, but I like the, he, how he says your job is to help your son find a sense of purpose. Your dad's sense of purpose began with giving up what created the glint in his eye, whereas your son's sense of purpose must begin with finding the glint in his eye, which is cool because you and I, right before this podcast, I wanted to talk about purpose. You want to talk about the glint in his eye. So that's actually why I wanted to read that because <laughs> it kind of brings yeah. it both together. You know, maybe that's, I felt like that's a, that's a good place to start, but you know, I mean, yeah, purpose, as far as a clinician, I don't want to jump right ahead, but I mean, that's, that's probably where I've kind of um, moved uh, probably more like, to, I guess, this podcast, uh, you know, because I started to understand that there was a, there's a direct connection when people find a sense of meaning that's much greater than themselves than if they don't psychologically, those people just get so right. much better. Um, whether I'm hmm. evaluating somebody in the emergency room or talking to a single mom or talking to an older gentleman who's in his seventies and all of his kids are gone, you know, and, and his wife is much is getting older and she's getting sick. So all of these different types of people, like if they don't have that sense of purpose, there's a radically different uh, psyche that I'm dealing with than people that actually have a much higher goal, you know. Um, so anyway, but yeah, I would love to talk. Well, about that's that. good. I mean, and that and that's definitely I, w I wonder mm -hmm. if the idea of finding a purpose larger than yourself, that's kind of what he, you know, what he presents as a solution uh, to this boy crisis, uh, or at least the purpose void within yeah. the boy crisis is to talk about giving boys a purpose that's bigger than themselves. I wouldn't you say that that's kind of always been <laughs> the, the goal, mm -hmm. like even prior, you didn't want your, your purpose to be defined by just what you do your work, right? You wanted it yeah. uh, to, 
be defined as who you were, especially as Christians, right, in relationship to God, how how we yeah. are bringing Him glory. So mm-hmm. I think there's value in this um, in this idea, but I would say it's always been at least if if someone was reading their Bible, they've always kind of had some acknowledgement of this, but maybe it's not the general uh, worldview, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know if it's assumed in every culture. I mean, I think, you know, in, I I like how he gave an example of Japan um, from 1600s all the way to the late 1800s. Um, it was really kind of interesting. The females started acting like males and the ma- and there's, there, there was a transgender movement in that time. I, I don't want to, you know, and then there was also, um, they were debating their own sexuality. And the whole reason is because they didn't really have anything to fight for. It was, it was rapid peace. I often kind of think about our own time. Whereas, as we're asking these questions, it's been, we've had a significant amount of peace in the past, I would say 20 years, 20 plus years, whereas that only, it's only, it's only every 20 years you get new generations. You know, it's, people think it's like 70 years, like, no, it's actually only, you only see shifts every 15, 20 years, actually, you know, it's, it's a much, much quicker. So I think when you have a prolonged area where there hasn't been like war or drafts or stuff like that it's it we start to right. kind of go much more inward without even critiquing all these movements it's not even where i'm going it's just you go from outward to inward and when the huh. assumption is family country god church even in non and that's I, I bring in both religion and non-religion because even in a secular culture if it's like country and family you're going to get a significant amount of sacrifice. And if it's like God church, you're going to get a lot of sacrifice. But if you go more toward the inward lo- you know, the inward control, not inward locus of control, but like in internal sense of reality, then it's like, I have to create my own purpose. And when it's me and there's no outside source telling you what that identity is, then you kind of, it makes sense why we would be, you know, you would see a lot more, you know, people be more drawn to the sexual ethics and sexuality and, you know, how I define myself there. So it's really, yeah, it's kind of, it, it, it's, it's interesting whether you go from outward to inward, that sense of pur- purpose is going to radically. It's yeah. Gonna be different. I, yeah. I was just reading about the generation. The So, cause it's not a clearly defined number of years, but it, but the average is something like 25 years. Um, between mm. one generation to the next. So right. it's yeah. between 20, it basically yeah. 20 to 30, but 25 would be the average. Yeah. I think, I think what I was referring to is we, we really see a radically shift within 15. You could already predict okay. it pretty well. Okay. But yeah, you're right. Like 25 is, is kind of the, uh, that's kind of the textbook answer, but um, sure. You know, but within 50, within like 12 to 15, you're already kind of seeing this new generation, new shifts. And I've already, you know, oh, yeah. between our generation and even like Gen X versus even the newest, newest generation that's like coming up that. Um, yeah, well, I would I mean, yeah. the I think the shift has shrunk with technology. Mm. Right. I mean, huh. so much yeah. change, so drastic yeah. So many drastic changes within a short amount of time has mm. has sort of reduced the the cycle of generations. That's um, a fascinating point because I would be I would be curious fifty years from now how they define generations now with the influx of huge social media and technology. That's a great, yeah, it's a yeah. really good observation. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway. so I don't know what you want to talk about first is sure. the yeah. Clint. Do we want to go through? Yeah, let's talk about, the, let's talk about Clint because that's like the step okay. up to purpose. Yeah, why not? Yeah, what what was your impressions on that? And yeah, design? so he, maybe you could tell our listeners what that means. And <laughs> he gives he gives the example of, or I guess 
when he speaks at conferences or something, he'll challenge people to think about what what the glint in their dad's eye, what when did they see a glint in his eye or, you know, sort of like the, when did his, his face brighten up? When did he get excited about something? When, you know, when could you tell he was really invested in, in something? I, I guess that's the idea, like the sparkle in his eye. So, and, um, and so you, you think about that and, and you, you wonder, okay, is it when he went, fishing? Is it when he went camping? Is it when he was playing and roughhousing with, with, with you and the kids or, you know, other, what was it when he was just with the family outside of the family? Where, what is the, the place where you generally saw that? And, um, and then think about whether he could make a living off of that. And generally, it's going to be obvious that whatever the glint in his eye was, he had to, he had to somehow like either put that aside or stuff it in order to focus on making money, right. In order to providing for the family. So um, the, I think that the goal of the practice is to sort of develop some compassion for your father who probably sacrificed time with you and, and, you know, whatever couldn't be as involved in your life as uh, you might, have wanted in most, in most cases, there's some level of that, uh, of a little bit of, um, either a bitterness or a regret, um, some consequences, long-term impact from the relationship we have with our father. And I guess what he's trying to show by this experiment, this thought experiment is to say, you know, can you shift from the hurts that you feel to recognizing with some compassion uh, the decisions your dad had to make and was forced to make because he loved you, right? And I thought it's a it's a it's a really good and powerful experiment, I think, for for most people. But I would also say that there's people who, um, you know, whose dad isn't there, right? Who they who when they think about that, they're like, I don't I don't know what his glint looked like. I never saw it. Um, and so he points out that you still have a relationship with your father, even if you didn't know him, because mm. it's the relationship in your mind, right? It's the relationship that you wish you had that you, you know, maybe thought was possible, but, but got crushed by circumstances or whatever. So again, his point is all of us have a relationship with our father to some degree or another. And the question is, how do we reflect upon that? Do we reflect upon it with a great deal of regret, bitterness, frustration, or do we kind of have some compassion for the circumstances and the situation mm. that that brought him to that? I would just, well, I kind of want to get personal with it though and, and yeah, say, yeah. when I listened, when I took that kind of seriously and I started thinking about what was the glint in my father's eye and, you know, I also want to honor my, my parents and, and not just, um, you know, not just berate their, their flaws or faults, but I would say that the glint that I can recall, um, from growing up in, in that home was he loved his pets a lot. And, um, and we had a lot of pets (laughs) and we had so many pets that like my home smelled like a zoo. And I didn't want, I was embarrassed to have friends over. I was like, uh, I, you know, like I would just rather be outside and play outside and play basketball, football. Uh, 
but anyway, so so he, I, I would say that's one thing I saw. And then I would also say that mm. he did enjoy outdoors. He did enjoy camping and um, and kind of uh, fishing. Most of the time that I saw my dad, he was reading. He did a lot of things by himself. He was he kind of enjoyed his alone time. So I don't know that mm. I necessarily, when I looked at him reading, saw some glint in his eye, you know, like he was really excited to be doing that. But definitely like if yeah. we were going camping, I think I could see, I would say I definitely saw a, like a, a bright in him lighten up and, and be maybe excited about that um, adventure. And, and frankly, to be honest, thinking about my childhood, camping was probably uh, the highlight as well for me in terms of spending time with my family, like where, where it was, it's just us, you know, I would say camping was where we were at our best. Um, wow. And yeah. so so, so then applying that, like, okay, so you think about the glint in his eye and I wonder, you know, if you think, did he sacrifice that in order to work? And, you know, unfortunately, I think when I, when I look at who really filled that role in our home, it was my mom. My mom was the stable income. My mom was the steady breadwinner. She was, she wasn't, she was the sole breadwinner at times, but not all the time. Hmm. Um, and but I mean, we de- absolutely depended upon her income my whole childhood. So um, I that that probably disrupted him in some ways, and he was not very consistent with jobs. He jumped from one job to the next. Um, mm. But I do know that when I think about uh, what I want to know about my father and his own childhood, um, mm. it, he had a a rough time. I mean, he, I think he grew up in an alcoholic home abusive father and um like physically abusive and and Mm. i'm sure every other uh, like emotionally um verbally Mm -hmm. but Mm. so so all of that to say like i can understand and even think about some of those experiences with compassion but Mm. but this this experiment almost is it's hard for me to to go okay am i am i moving toward the goal here of being more compassionate uh, when I asked that question, because I feel like my dad didn't really sacrifice the glint. He, he chose Mm -hmm. reading, he chose pets, he chose fishing and camping over work all the time. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I, you know, when, when I think about that, I, 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 you know, yeah, I yeah. I, I kind of have an, a greater appreciation for my my mom and the stability mm. that she brought into the home there. But I wonder what was missing there. It's almost it's almost like having not having a dad when you have a dad, but he's not present, right? When he, right. he's he's mm. isolated for the most part, and mm. uh, any interaction you have with him is is generally negative. Mm. So yeah. Yeah, that's now, a, you're, yeah, now, no, that's, now you're putting yeah. on your therapy hat. No, no. <laughs> that's why that's why I'm drinking brandy. I'm kidding. <laughs> so, no, no, I, I I love that. I mean, I could I could go. Yeah, I mean, that's I think I, one of the things I really liked about what he was saying. I mean, that's the process of exoneration. Um, mm-hmm. A really good book is Parenting from the Inside Out, and Daniel Siegel goes into um, all of this stuff about asking the right type of questions to your mom and dad and the people that raised you, because. Um, it, it's really helpful when you're a parent yourself, so you don't overcompensate. Um, you know, what I often find with parents is that we tend to overcompensate our own parents 
So, I mean, when you said that about your dad, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I have nothing but so much compassion because um, I don't even know him though. But if he came from a very abusive home, I would be so curious about what he felt like he needed to compensate over. Um, yeah, you know what I mean. I thought about like, that too. Yeah, um, maybe I can. Almost even... like there's such a switch. Like if you see like a dad that's like really, really not doing this, but he came from a house that was like quite the opposite. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, just, I, I just, have all. The, I just have questions. Yeah, <laughs> those are yeah. good questions. I, I mean, I could speculate mm. speculate because mm. we really rarely talked about uh, his his childhood or his, the home he grew up in, but he would, um, I, I almost get the sense that he felt like maybe he had the same tendencies, you know, potential there. He was Mm. never physically abusive to me, um, you know, Mm. in, in that sense, but, but there was such a distance and a disconnect. And I wonder if maybe he thought, well, I can, I can get close to my pets and it's not, too much of a, you know, like if, if my anger gets the best of me or something, it's not going to, the damage won't be as severe. Right. If I get too close to my kids, then maybe the damage will be, um, you know, Mm. devastating. So I, that, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, no, I think that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's sad that, cause he passed away. When did he pass? pass No, no. My mom passed away last year. Oh, my mom did. Okay. Yeah. My dad's not doing great, but yeah. Um, you know, Okay. So that passed away. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, maybe you're, well, definitely the admiration towards your mother goes, you know, it's, it's much, it's very, very high. So, I mean, think about all the things you sacrificed, but I do, I do wonder that if I were to, you know, I mean, if he was like a client or, you know, somebody that I would want to talk to, I would be, I would be so much, I would be so curious because if the thing that Siegel makes the point of too, it's like, if you don't go through the process of exoneration, your very first thought is to replicate what was done to you. And so if you came from a highly, that's like your instinct. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's funny because um, I had to do my own therapeutic work because of my own family background. Won't get into it too much, you know, but um, I found that now as a father, I'm so glad I did a lot of that therapy work because there's still a a part of me that would probably replicate because we only know what we, what our attachment figures are instinctually. That's why the first two years of our, of our birth are so essential because that's like, that's you for the rest of your life. And, and that's like reactive attachment disorder. If you don't show affection to a baby, those babies like will never get better. Not to sound like a mm-hmm. fatalist, but that's just, there's, there's so much research on that. And so if your if your father's fur came from, a, I don't know how abusive of a home it was, it would be probably really good. It would help you to know more about that story because if his, you know, his first instinct was I'm going to hit this kid which probably lasted him his whole life, then that's Freud will call that displacement in the sense like, okay, I'm not going there. Therefore I'm just going to be kind of like, you know, somewhat of a mendicant or, you know, just kind of like just doing my own thing. Because if I mesh myself in work and become overly stressed and get super involved with little people that could irritate me, I could see the tendency to hit. I don't know. I don't want to, that's, that's where I'm going to stop there. But I mean, sure. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I'm always curious about the comp and whenever I hear like families where one person's like doing this and the other person's doing, you know, totally different. That's, that's, that's an example of someone not exonerating, you know, and that's why exoneration is so helpful, which is why I like the chapter, because it's so hard to f- truly forgive until you exonerate. And that, that takes a while to really build up and exonerate. is just really understanding the narrative of where that person came from. 
and also asking yourself the question, if I had had the same knowledge and the same resources as this person, would I have done something different? Huh. And I, and with that, it's like, I don't know. And so that's where exoneration starts, but it grows over a long period of time through more narrative. And then you're able to kind of like let go of some of that pain, you know, because I think it's very important. I think sometimes the church is a little guilty of quickly forgiving. Hmm. And um, I don't like what that. What do you mean by that? Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, what's her name? Uh, the... Uh, Rutledge, Rutledge, Fleming Rutledge in the Crucifixion oh, yeah. of Christ talks about um, just we have to be careful of quickly forgiving because when we do that, sometimes we don't understand the nature of what Christ really, really died for. So I've heard I've heard people, you know, just say, well, you need to forgive and like just kind of casually and which I agree with, you know, principally. But it takes that's not an overnight process. I mean, that could take a really no. long time. And I think it's a good start where you're starting. It's like a good start to kind of go there and ask those really hard questions. Um, I like how honest mm. and direct you're being with that. Cause that's, that's a wonderful start mm. um, because that's, yeah. Just, anyway. No. Well, I mean, there's a sense in, in mm. which I do have the, you know, a fear of my own kind of overcorrecting or changing or even having the same tendencies, just like you said, where we grow up, that's, that's our natural instinct. That's what we know. So yeah. a father is someone who, who stays isolated, disconnects and reads. And that's, and that is something that I have a problem with. I have to actively um, plan against those. <laughs> right. Right? Right. So if, yeah. if we don't have a plan for what we're doing tonight. I'm going to find a book. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, yes. That's, uh, the, the reality I didn't, I hated reading as a kid. Oh, it wasn't until I went to seminary, really, that I started enjoying reading. Wow. Um, yeah. But now I can't put books down. I feel oh. like I, I always have something. Yeah. So nothing, anyways, nothing about, I know. Which I think is a wonderful coping skill. So it's a very good. <laughs> yeah, it's a great so. coping skill, but it can also be an escape from yeah. the tension, yeah. right? And the right. and the pressure of, of family, right? Of just being home, mm. being, being present where there's, mm. uh, you know people that that demand attention and you just mm -hmm. kind of want to I don't want to think about anything but myself right now right um so yeah. anyways <laughs> enough about me but <laughs> no I can no, I this is fascinating yeah I love it, that I, I, well, I appreciate your comments huh. and, and um and your thoughts I have I have done some thinking about this with uh you know with uh professionals and with and gotten help so I I, mm. I still it's something that I can, um, you know, that I, I can do more exploring on for sure. Um, yeah. And you know, but, it's, it's fun because whenever I talk about like reconciliation with parents and stuff like that, people always think it's like a therapy session where there's crying and all this uproot. And right. I could say both by personal experience and clinically, it's actually a lot easier. One, you don't even have to bring up stories that where he feels like defended, like defensive or whatnot, or he feels like he's kind of being on the you know, on the stage and it, you can, I mean, what's cool is like the thing I like about that book, Parenting from the Inside Out, it's, um, I did it in grad school when I was training for an MFT in my MFT training and I interviewed my own father and it was just like questions that I had never thought of asking him and they were all huh. in the book for me. And I just, it was like an interview and it was really, really, really helpful. And I remember writing that report and just crying, uh, mm -hmm. just weeping. Cause I finally, it's like, I, I, I understand. I, I finally understood him in a way that I never had. 
And it was very, it was very releasing. It was just like, wow. Okay. Now I get you. It's like, even if I don't agree, I get you, which is kind of like, that's so freeing if you could do that. Cause it's like, yeah, you go from like gridlock to open dialogue. It's like, okay, which is then you don't have these parts that feel like either I have to overcompensate all this other stuff. It's just like, no, I, you know, it's just this sense of release, but it takes a while. It's, and that's, what's cool. It's yeah. like, you know, there's even for, I know there are a lot of people, probably a lot of our listeners. And I think most, many of us, you know, it's our relationship with our fathers and mothers are so vital. I think it's, I think it's like one of the main quote dragons that, you know, that's in our journey. You want to say dragons, not that they're evil, but like things that we have to look at really, really, yeah. really deeply as our caregivers, both good and bad, you know, so that, you know, it's fascinating, you know, just mm. how, you know, that, how our story, how our stories and what we do with them. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm listening to mm. uh, the body keeps the score. Oh yeah. Yeah. Russell Vanderkolk. That's oh, another fantastic. one that is worth reading. Really good book. Kind of yeah. gets into the science behind the attachment theory and I, oh, and, yeah. and then obviously gives you know, plenty of examples and, and yeah. encouragements. Probably one of my so, books. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Good mm. stuff. Well, uh, I thought we'd transition to what you were wanting to talk about, which in the rest of this chapter, which, you know, kind of leads from, I mean, the, after he's talking about the glint in the eye, he says, this isn't yeah. just an American problem. It's not just a Western problem, but you have in Japan, you know, this, there's actually a video game called Kuroshi where the, the winner was the person who could commit suicide the fastest at work, I guess. Mm. Like the, the, the language or the idea of it is working Kuroshi means to work yourself to death. Um, And so you win by basically dying. And and it's really obviously a very cynical look at culture and at Mm. at their society in Japan and, and the, the way they idolize work. Um, and, and the control that it has over, over men. Um, so I, I think that sort of leads to where you were, you were thinking about the death of a salesman and, um, yeah. things. So I'll let you take over, but yeah, no, I, I was just thinking about like what, you know, right before we were talking in just the sense of purpose and, um, mm-hmm. one of my favorite, um, uh, you know, uh, I think books, one of my books that I always recommend is, a. Uh, Victor Frankl, the sense of man's search for meaning, and it's called Logotherapy. And he talks about how, well, he was in the Holocaust and he wrote that book as a psychiatrist and he noticed two, two groups of people. One group was, um, they died off really, really, really fast. And then another group um, lived through significant amount of suffering to the point of almost like starving to death. Whereas the other group that died off really fast, they actually had enough food but they still died off. And and so he, he, he saw that the difference between those two groups was logo, what he would say, logotherapy, which is, which is, well, get the word logos, which is a meaning or purpose or reason or, mm-hmm. you know, the word, something greater than yourself. And so the people that had something greater than themselves really endured. But um, I remember talking to a psychic kid in the, in the, in the um, emergency room and he was coming in for suicidal ideation. And this is what really kind of changed me is, I was, I was telling him, you know, he, he had attempted suicide and I said, you know, where are you now? And he's like, no, I'm going to kill myself. Um, and then I was just kind of so thrown off. And I just said, well, wouldn't your mom be upset? You know, wouldn't your dad be upset? And he just looked me blank in the eye and he just said, that's not good enough reason. Um, mm-hmm. And he was right. He was like, 
you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to live for them. And so every, every counter example I gave, well, what about school? What about this? What about that? You know, he just, I would have a different counter counter argument that, you know, that you're not giving me a deeper reason, a deep enough reason. And kind of really forced me to realize the limitations of just pure psychology, for example, not psychology, but just like, if we don't, I, or I should say, like, if we have no meaning, I guess, just offering just clinical feedback, I guess, you know, and right, just, right. we need something that's greater than ourselves. And, um, you know, it just got me thinking that he needed it. He needed a he purpose. Needed, for- he needed something that's much greater than himself. And, you know, that's, you know, I think, I, th- I think we could see a lot of people that, you know, according to our, whether, you know, and even ourselves too. I mean, you know, at any time that people are struggling with addiction, you know, or, or maybe it's, um, loneliness or despair, um, or, or, you know, it, it could be, um, you know, a sense of, uh, just maybe, maybe very passive hopelessness, whatever it is, you know, it's just, you, you know, you do, you do wonder, okay, if there's a, if there's a greater sense of meaning, what is this all for? And I think even as Christians, you know, even we could say we live for the Lord and we, you know, sometimes we can get really down because we don't, we don't even know where that purpose is. I was just reading Psalm 44 today and he was like pleading with God, can you please wake up and rouse yourself? Oh Lord, you know, please don't forget. I love that. I love that Psalm because I sometimes want to say that. Can you please rouse yourself up? I don't know where you are, you know? So we can have that. We could like the Ecclesiastes. I have no idea where you are. And that's often where a lot of the psalmists, that's where they're in their darkest, in their darkest time spiritually. I think that's where we are. We don't see the purpose of this. And so, um, you know, it's not a, I don't think it's a, an accident that during COVID we had, we saw more divorces in the church, more affairs, more alcohol mm-hmm. abuse, more physical abuse, you name it, because the church closed its doors. And, you know, there's a reason why, Anyway, Paul says the greatest curse you could do is I'm going to give this person over to Satan, you know, and um, when you leave the church, that's what you're doing, the enemy, you know, and, and, and the church literally closed its doors and gave itself up. So we had no purpose for probably almost a year, you know, and a lot of people and that that did a lot of damage, you know, and I think our thought was, you know, not ours, but I think the the elite was if we could just like almost like a light switch, if we just turn it off and then turn it back on, everything goes back to normal. Right. But you know, you can't do that with purpose. You can't do that with meaning. You can't just like, oh, okay, you can't go here for a year. And then, okay, go back to where you were. And I think it's like, that's not how meaning works. You know, so yeah. it's, you know, and I, I think that's, we're still seeing the ramifications of that in a sense, not to get into all that. But I mean, it just no, spoke to me a lot, you know, because I think there's a direct correlation. Purpose is almost like sleep. You know, if you don't get it, you can't move forward. If you have no sleep, you it doesn't matter how much, how much clinical work we do, you're not going to improve. If you don't have a sense of purpose, I could help you a little bit, you know, um, maybe, maybe I could help you talk to your wife better. But if you honestly have no purpose, I probably not going to get through to you. So it's just so foundational. That's all. Yeah. That's, I just really liked that and how to speak to that for men. And I think men or boys, um, they lack that big time. Why are you here? You know, and are you here to yeah. protect? Well, you well don't protect because then you're then you're toxic and you're too aggressive. Well, should you be passive? Okay, well maybe, but then people get upset with you because you don't make a sacrifice. And because like even sacrifices are, that's something that you discipline yourself doing. It's not like 
the bold, brave soldier. C.S. Lewis talks about this. It's not like he was just developed overnight. He had to develop like what people were, what he did behind the scenes. So if he didn't lie behind the scenes, he eventually would not lie in court, you know? And so if you, if he helped a little old lady down the street because she might've been attacked, nobody saw him. That was the, that's what he would do when no one would see him. And then when you take him in battle and you would do something brave, it's not like he just did something out of his character. He was building that to his character. So I guess I say all that because men need this. Men need some sense of purpose, but we need to start foundationally on just like the everyday. And that's right. why I think we don't understand when kids understand, like when they go to school and they're being told over and over again that they're toxic and that they're, you know, evil for being, you know, who they are, you know, and then all of a sudden, where are the brave men? Well, how, how do you think you're supposed to conjure that up? You know, it's just like... Anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good point, and I, I mean, I think it even goes beyond where the book does because the book kind of suggests that, right? You you need to replace the purpose of like work and um, warrior, give them something bigger than that. But there's mm. is a sense in which those purposes still have value; they still have a role in us innately, right, in our nature. So we value mm. the person who's willing to sacrifice, the person yeah. who's self-sacrificial and and giving their life for um, for another, right, for a, a loved one. And obviously, we think of all of it as a, as pointing to the greatest sacrifice where Christ died, not just for loved ones, but for his enemies. And this, this is an ideal for us to have. And I think you're right. We need not just to replace that, you know, that um, purpose with another purpose, but it needs to be a broader uh, recognition of where it applies, even in our home, where we say, I'm going to set aside me time for mm. family time. I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice, um, you know, having what I want to eat for what the family wants to eat. So, you know, littler decisions, but sacrifices mm. to some degree. And I think, you know, a father, uh, needs to exemplify that above all in his home. Mm. At, um, right. He, he needs to show that to his, to his son. And, and anyways, I think those are, those can be convicting, um, ways to apply this, this thought, but mm-hmm. I think it's a natural instinct for us to want to be that hero who's willing to lay down his life. Wow. Um, yeah. right. Yeah. And so how does that look on a day-to-day basis? It doesn't mean we we're foolish or that we're, we're out trying, you know, we've got a martyr complex <laughs> right? or that we want to find ourselves in a situation that's uh, life or death, but we do continually let go of, um, selfish you know values and and prioritize the community prioritize the family mm. uh, prioritize the other so yeah. i think those are uh, i think that's that actually strengthens the point that the book is making right that there is a purpose void and we need to fill it but we don't need to necessarily replace or remove the traditional roles we just yeah. need to recognize how they apply in our current context right um to, yeah, that was my only yeah, problem. I is I felt like he was sort of yeah. critiquing those as like. Yeah, he, I guess he was kind of ambiguous. I mean, yeah, I agree. I don't know if he was critiquing as much as he just. Sure. Like yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you. I just, I mean, no, I, 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 I did like uh, the whole part where he was, where well, I loved, I loved the part with John Lennon. Um, not to yeah. get into all that, but like John Lennon, uh, let our listeners know he had spoken to this author. He met him at a party, and he had said how he was influenced by his group 
and he didn't know he didn't know that this was John Lennon. I didn't know he was John Lennon either. Anyway, long story short, um, this person, which he didn't know was John Lennon at the time, told him, "Thank you so much. I I decided not to um, just be a workaholic. I decided to do twenty four seven with my kid, mainly because of you. And this was my dream to like do, sacrifice all my time for my little child." But at the very end of the book, he also this is the paradox. What John Lennon had discovered was the hidden John Lennon that the John Lennon who earned love discovered the John Lennon who could be love. Now, you know, it's a little anecdotal, mm-hmm. cute little summary. And I'm so glad I, he said this too. He said, had John Lennon attended to his first John Julian, the way that he attended Sean, we would never have heard of John Lennon. So that's mm-hmm. the paradox because he had to make a whole lot of sacrifices, you know, so that he can get here. And that's often negated. It's like, we often think that, we could just get here by not the time that has to be spent and the sacrifices that we have to make in the long hours and the overtime. And just, it's, you know, it, you know, that the two or three jobs that we have to do in the 401ks and the education for our kids. And Extended like, education. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> and just all the things that, but we do that because we would love to get to the point where we can, but the, you know, but here's the thing. It's like, well, this is the challenge. I think, I think as long as here's okay. So yeah, help me. Let's, let's play with this because it's a paradox, but it's, is it an unhealthy paradox? Because I think we have to do that. And a healthy individual will look toward the place where he could release and focus hundred percent on his child for, say, for example, and just like live for other people, I guess, live for himself in some ways but that only comes at the behest of sacrificing all of his time and energy. So people that are very self-centered or like people that just want to live for the glint of their eye, they want to push here as soon as possible without doing all of this. But the workaholics, the people that cannot let go, like Tim Keller talks a lot about this in his sermons. Like he's met so many men on their deathbeds who said, I just, my biggest regret is that I didn't spend more time with my children. He yeah. said he never heard any man ever say, I wish I worked more hours. So the workaholic on the other, it's like the inverse of that. He can't say no to reach the paradox of letting go. So it's like it kind of that paradox is a really good litmus test for people that are not just like wanting to get it too quickly. It's also it's a litmus test for people that only live for the gain of money or whatever, just by itself, like the kid in the emergency room without looking beyond themselves. And one day that'll catch up on them. and It'll destroy them. You know, like the Japanese, like, like, you know, so I just like that tension, I guess, yeah. because it's, it's, it, we, we sacrifice, but there is an expectation, hopefully that you'll see the fruit of your, your labor, you know, and, and even scripture kind of talks about that. I mean, it's, you can't get too theoretical about that, right? You can't build a theology on that, but you get what I mean. There's a kind of like an expectation on that. Anyway, I just thought. Yeah. Was, I mean, no, it's a good, it's a good mm-hmm. ex- uh recognition i think of the paradox that and you're right it, he asks a question later on where he says uh he doesn't it's not a question but it's the opening of i think chapter 12 the last chapter in the book in in this in this part part three but he says something along the lines of um basically we interview the people who are the most successful the ones who who basically are the cream of the crop in their field, right? And we ignore, or or the ones that are invisible 
are actually the ones that probably have more balance in their life. Wow. They're the ones I'll that- Yeah, I, I, I love that quote. So, yeah, we interview people who are extraordinarily success, successes, so they are visible. We ignore people who create a balanced life, so they are invisible. That is, we rarely interview and make visible those who spend the amount of time alone, uh, amount of alone time, spiritual time, family time, friend time, and share the housework time that takes away from their success at work, but adds to their love at home. Hmm. Yeah. So that's, yeah. And that's, and that whole chapter is about just that. It's kind of an elaboration on that paradox of when we're successful at work, we're actually hindering our success at home. We're learning traits like, okay, if I, if I want to be successful Mm -hmm. here, I need to detach. I need to focus. I need to give all my energy to this, you know, project or whatever, and even be less emotional about things, right? And then we get home, and we're we don't have the emotional capacity to celebrate with our our wow. child's success, or or to commiserate in their you know their mm. their challenges, their struggles, uh, to to have compassion on them. So, man, I think. I think it's, it's true. And it, it absolutely is a paradox. How do we, how do we solve it? It's, it's, I get, I get the impression that almost Mm -hmm. even the word balance is unhelpful because there's this implication that like, if you have, uh, you, you you have in, in every set, in every situation, you're sort of like perfectly even keel, you know, Mm -hmm. like you're on a teeter totter and it's, and it's perfectly balanced at all times. I think in reality, we have to basically put all of our weight on one <clears> side and, and invest in it. And then when it's time to go home, you know, right, we put all of our weight on the other side and we <clears> focus <throat> our, our energy there. It, it's almost like the language of balance might be um, confusing or unhelpful if, if we're not thinking about it properly, right? I, I don't think he means it that way. He, he probably means something along the lines of devoting enough energy and time, which is yeah. what, what I just said, right? He's just using the illustration in a different way. Um, right, right. You know, committing ourselves enough to to home, which probably is going to limit our success in mm. work. Um, and man, you see that, like, just think about social media. Right? Those who are successful, they they have to give a lot of time to that, mm. right? To make it, to, to, to get enough followers, mm. to have enough impact, to think of really uh, important things to say, right? And yeah. all of that is, is, I mean, it adds value to, to some degree, but it also is taking away somewhere, right? If, yeah. if you're, yeah. you're having great, now you might have already had, most people on like Twitter or Facebook mm. uh, that, are, that are the elite, right? They've already kind of had a platform to start with. And then everyone wants to follow them, even if they're not doing a whole lot on social media. So I get that there's exceptions to this, but I'm just saying like, if you're a nobody like me (laughs) and you jump on social media and try to become someone, you're going to invest a lot of time. And I just kind of feel like that, that whole hamster wheel gets extremely draining and tiring, you know, to where I just want to get rid of it altogether and just like, man, let me put my energy where I, I know I'm having an impact, which is like in person <laughs> with people. Right. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I, well, and also too, it, I think, it, it, I think it coincides with men. A lot of our men are, I mean, even the house that I'm sitting in the, the place you're at right now, the bricks behind you, you know, everything that we're walking on 99%, that's a high number. We're built by men that we, wow. we yeah. are totally ungrateful for. 
Um, and I put myself mm. there. I'm talking about myself. And I don't think about the guys that built this house. I don't think about the guys that built my work. I don't think the guys of, like go to my local coffee shop, the guys that constructed all that. The Whenever I'm in my car, when I'm holding my wheel, when I'm on the road, I mean, every single blue collar you can imagine. The food that I'm partaking because of the truck drivers that are going back and forth. And then that's, I think that's why I can't stand about everything's a patriarchy. I'm like, what the hell? What? what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, do you, yeah. do you understand the sacrifices a lot of these men make? And it's, it's always like, anyway, a little bit. It's such, a, you're it's right. such, a, it's such it's an ingrat, it's such an ungracious. It's, it's so ingrat, it's, there's such ingratitude. It's always yeah. wealthy white people that, bitch like that too which is so hilarious because they're sitting in the very things the institutions that are have built up their giant you know ivy towers for them and you know it's it, anyway sorry for the rant but i mean it's just <laughs> but i mean even speaking to myself i'm not i'm not grateful even the book helped look at all the books that were i mean all, all of that was likely all you know in factories that were developed by men you know, and, and that's that's invisible. That's invisible. And we're, we're, it, but now our young men, the boy crisis, as it's, it's as it's coming out, because these boys are. I mean, I was just listening. I'm I'm reading a book called On Temple Granlin, and um, she's an autistic person, and uh, she uh, she she used to she so she does goes to a lot of animal animal factory plants. And um, she was the she's the one that actually made autism kind of aware. Like she brought all this autism okay. awareness and everything. She, she has autism too. She's on the spectrum, whatnot. Okay. And um, she talks about how she would meet people in factories who couldn't even graduate high school, but they they had over 20 patents to their name. And so 30, 40 years ago, we used to have shop and we used to have maintenance and we used to have all of these wonderful trades that boys who were kind of on the spectrum, even though they didn't have the diagnosis, they would thrive in those classes. But now because of everything from lo- no child left behind, we, we, we teach according to the test all these kids get basically screened out. And so where do those kids go? Cause these are, I, these were a lot of these kids are my clients. They go to video games. They have no purpose yeah. whatsoever when we should be. I mean, so what you notice is that p- kids are on the spectrum who are very, very good with their hands. They go in, they're very huge visual thinkers. They will see things that none of us who are verbal thinkers will never see. And so those are men, um, that that we need in factories so i bring all that up because now when she goes to these plants that used to all be made in america in the past 15 20 years she looks at the you know whenever there's a broken machine or whatnot she's looking at the patent made in holland made in holland made in holland made in italy made in holland nothing's Mm -hmm. built in america so we have a whole generation of men that are coming up they're not they're not expected to know shop or mechanics or anything else like that those are the men that have built all these infrastructures. So where are they being screened out on video games, on pornography? So erectile dysfunction is the average age for it. Now it went from about in the sixties all the way to the thirties now, because you have a lot of young 20, 25 year olds because of their addiction to porn. Wow. You know um, I see kids as young as 23 that have erectile dysfunction because of their addiction to porn. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's very, very, yeah. There's a huge direct connection between that. So, I mean, but that's where we anyway. So men that are that should find purpose behind their hands and everything else. Like again, they're being screened out. Mm-hmm. They're being told that they're toxic. What are they supposed to do? Yeah, you know, it's 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 a it's a crisis. It's an actual crisis. And so then when some freaking woke feminist comes in and says, "Oh, we're all living in the patriarchy," I and mean, it's just like the icing on the cake <laughs> of ingrat. Like, okay, stop. Just stop. Right. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. But well, I mean, and it's and and the whole they just belittle the crisis altogether, right? Um, yeah. He he gives yeah. the example of the of the Super Bowl commercial in 2015 with Sarah Silverman, oh, and right. how she there she's trying to one up her another the other comedian. Oh, and they're talking right. about yeah. Um, yeah. they're they're in their homes, right? And she's on in different places in her home. One is a uh, you know like a whatever their theater. Their um, uh, she ends up going into the like the pregnancy center of her home and give delivers this <laughs> child. And then the big the big you know joke of the commercial, and it was a T-Mobile commercial of all things talking about how you get, they get great reception in all these various areas in their mansion. Um, right. But right. she ends up giving the, this baby that mom delivers a baby and she goes, sorry, it's a boy. And, and a lot mm-hmm. of people actually blew up about that and, and gave her flack and, you know, and then, and then you have people, I think, I can't remember the, mm. the name of the author, but someone on probably New York times um, wrote an opinion on it where that was like, it's not sexist. Uh, because it's not dealing with an oppressed class, right? It's not dealing with an oppressed group. Yeah. And so men can't call this sexist to to say no one wants boys. And yet that is the reality. I mean, even look on um, someone, someone um, in, said something innocent about like um, how, Oh, it was the, it, it wasn't innocent. It was a, it was a man who's, you know, kind of talking about the same thing on Twitter about the boy crisis from a different perspective. But anyways, he was saying something about the sperm count being, being like at an all time low like mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of just our population and, and someone, mm-hmm. um, and, and they were like, people were celebrating on Twitter about, about this because obviously like there's still people that think we're overpopulated and we have, we need to control it somehow. So, mm. uh, but it's like there is a an assumption that mm. that we want people to grow. You know, we we don't really need men or boys uh, uh, to make things work, and we'll figure it out without them. Um, and I, it, it's not just yeah. ungrateful. It's yeah, it's ignorant. Right? And at the and same time, I don't want men to be, like what we're not saying is men are somehow victims because that actually right. makes it even worse. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, where, where do you draw the line? You know, so it's like because the most abusive men see themselves as victims, you know, and right. there's there's something about that. But, well, two things can be true at once. Men are not victims. And um, there is a crisis going on, you know, and that we need to address, which is why we're doing this book review. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. We need to we need yeah. to regain yeah. some dignity and we need to yeah. think about things. Um, and then mm. obviously most of what we talked about here from this part was just mm kind of showing the problem, showing the crisis again yeah. from different angles, but we'll get into mm. the rest of this part um, yeah. next time and uh, maybe dig a little bit deeper into the, the hero um, kind of the hero paradox. But oh, I right. think some yeah. of that, some of that we've already, we've already discussed. I did want to get into though, the, the mm. concepts and I'm just sort of setting us up for next time, but the, the idea that he recommends of being able to stay at home, like have full-time dads and what, what are the conditions for something like that? I'd like us to think about that because my instinct is to say, I don't know that that's a great idea, at least in a broad scale, but we'll, um, you know, anyways, we could, we can talk more about it. uh, Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm, 
I have a lot to consider. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not against it. When you look at the Proverbs 31, any hardcore conservative guy who says, yeah, we know the guy was working 24 seven. Um, you're not getting that from the text. She was working right. 24 seven and he was likely just hanging out with elders. <laughs> so I think there's like a lot of biblical freedom on that. You know, that's my take. I know there's hardcore like Doug Wilson's that would strongly disagree with that. Um, I think there's a little bit of freedom there, but at the same time, God made women maternal and that's beautiful. And it's, it's very essential toward attachment. And, um, Mm -hmm. and at the same time, God also, I think made men to be a little bit more, I I don't want to say practical to offend all of our female guests or anything, but I mean, no, a little black and white at times, which I think is actually really good for parenting. You know, I mean, less balance and I, Bethany and I balance and I, Bethany and I balance each other really, really well because of that. It's just, you know, it's just, I mean, we're kind of like our typical couple. She's just brings such sweetness and everything else. But when the kids are like getting out, I'm like, Nope, go to bed. All right. I'm like, (laughs) I'm still that way, you know, (laughs) even though I'm a clinician and they respond really well to both. And it's like the time to do both, you know, and it's like a a good relationship. You have that interaction, you know, and those are well-behaved kids when you could allow both types of parenting, you know, there's a time to just be like, Nope, Get your ass on the field, man. Come on, let's go. And, you know, right. come here, buddy. Let me cry with you, you know, and tell me what you're <laughs> you <know, so. laughs> Yes, I anyway. think the, yeah. that that'll be that'll be yeah. plenty to okay. discuss next time. Yeah. It was well, fun, Peter. Very fun. Glad we did it. Uh, All right. I will end the recording. All right. Do I end or?